in the reading of Scripture, and we're going to read Jude 17 through the end of the chapter. Jude 17. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. Jude 17 through 25. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, Lord, for the great privilege that we have to have um, your word breathed out and um, contained, Lord, in this word, in in the Bible. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us this this understanding and, Lord, this wealth of, of resource, Lord, that your Holy Spirit works into our hearts, Lord, through preaching, through reading, through studying. And uh, Lord, I ask today that we would not shy away from it, Lord, that we would come running to it, Lord, because we recognize that it is through the ministry of the word that you, uh, you minister to our souls. So Lord, help us to be hungry and thirsty for truth today, and allow me as your messenger to simply be the vehicle through which you work so that your will can be accomplished in your people. And Lord, if there are those that are here that have not come face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means to be a child of God, that through our time together today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit uh, would grip that soul and, Lord, draw that person, uh, Lord, into your family. We just pray for your will to be accomplished now in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Maybe you're like me. Um, I love to shower. Uh, I don't like to be dirty. Call it an idiosyncrasy, call it some kind of a strange weirdness, call it normal, I like to be clean. Now, I'm not kind of like this uber kind of weird guy, but I just, I do like to be clean. The bath can do the trick, but there's something about taking a shower that just, I feel like I am totally clean. Now, when I I was young, uh, growing up in England, I remember that Thursday night was bath night. Um, Like every young boy growing up, I dreaded Thursday nights, and my mom would have to force me into the bathtub, and every once in a while, I would use shampoo and soap, okay? Now, some of you can relate to what I'm saying, because you lived that out also, and some of you younger folk do not comprehend what I'm talking about at all, because you've grown up in a context where having water readily available through a shower has been the norm. So that once a week bath for me was a norm, not some unusual, strange practice, but it's what people by and large did in the culture and the community that I was growing up in. Now when I came to the States in 1980, I took my first ever shower. Interesting statistic, right? And maybe I took a shower like at a swimming pool somewhere or something like that, but just never experienced what it was like to take a shower, but it began a love affair for me. I love taking a shower because I hate to be dirty. I don't like to exercise and then go back to the office and work with papers when I'm dirty. I don't like to go get my hair cut and then go on with the regular effects of the day. I am doing everything I can to get back home so I can take a shower. I love taking a shower. I don't like to be dirty. And friends, I'm saying all this because there is a sense in which Jude's letter is like taking a shower. And there's a sense in which as we come to this little 
book, there is this pollution of ungodliness that Jude is addressing. And he's calling us to live in the context of that we have to wrestle with the effects of this ungodliness in our lives and throughout this particular letter that we just simply want to wash it off. We've taken the time to walk through some of the portrayals of ungodliness. It's not an easy thing to do, but there's a need for us to do it so that we can see what truly God is addressing here as ungodly. But I want you to notice that Jude reveals to us three I want to say aspects of this struggle. First of all, the dirt of our sinful nature. Verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. This is a picture of the ungodly. They have these sinful desires that they are just naturally follow, following. And this is the internal nature. This is the sin that we have inside. This is the dirt that we struggle from within. Then there's the dirt of a sick society from verse 7. And in verse 7 it says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And that's just one little, one little description from this book that just reveals to us the society that we're living in. Then there's the, the dirt of a sensual gospel that we find in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It was interesting this week, American Bible Society came out with a picture of the, you might want to say, top... Um, top uh, cities in our nation and the bottom cities in our nation as far as who actually reads the Bible. And interestingly enough, the Bay Area was number four of the group of people that do not read their Bible. And it was a good reminder that we are a church plant in a place that needs the gospel, okay? Um, it was also very interesting to see the other end of things, and I encourage you, you want to Take a look at that. It's really kind of a helpful tool. But what we have here that Jude is addressing is a false gospel that embraces sensuality and sexual immorality as acceptable and honoring before God. There's a twisting. There's a perverting. It is not willing to be under the authority of Christ and his words of instruction. So it is a twisted and perverted gospel that permeates our culture as well as the church at large. Now, friends, we don't have to look far to see this kind of ungodliness rampant around us. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, an example from the political realm. And I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I'm just simply reflecting what other people have said about our political climate and what is going on. From the world of politics, we read Matt Barber's article in World Net Daily, and it's entitled this, America's Chief Export, Immorality. He contends that one might list things like Obamacare, the rising unemployment, the shrinking economy, the explosive ongoing national debt, the pervasive government eavesdropping, the attack on marriage, or the mass infanticide through abortion. He says that while all these things may be a part of the fabric of the real problem, he says America groans because the wicked rule. I just want you to think about that. There is a wickedness that is pervasive in much of what's going on in our country. And in particular, when rulers make decisions that are not in conformity to what God says, that are in fact a shaking of fist at what God says, or what God says is twisted to say something different. So he goes on, he says this, Indeed, under this president, America's chief export has become immorality. Sexual deviancy, murder of the unborn, redistribution of wealth, and other evils have been sanitized and propagandized as basic human rights. So now something that God specifically rejects as ungodly is being presented as a basic human right. All right? God's truth has been turned on its head. It's been twisted. Now... 
from the world of the broad umbrella of the church in America. Again, we don't have to go too far to Google and find out scandals that are taking place all over the place, right? Pastors committing adultery, pastors involved in all kinds of immorality, pastors or elders involved in homosexual activity. And it's not unusual now for churches to accept what is clearly taught in Scripture um, to be a sin, in other words, immorality in all its forms, as a norm that is an individual sexual preference, preference to be respected. Imagine turning to your, or turning up to your Charles Village Methodist Church one day to find your pastor, the Reverend Ann Gordon, showing up as Reverend Drew Phoenix, having, over the past couple of weeks, had a sex change. And the answer being given is this, the gender I was assigned at birth has never matched my own true, authentic, God-given gender identity. Now, my question here is this. How is the true, unadjusted, undiminished gospel to be preached from such a pulpit? Or any pulpit, for that matter, where immorality and disdain for the clear teaching of Christ is obvious? The answer is simple. It cannot be preached. When the gospel of Jesus Christ has been perverted to embrace sensuality, when the authority of Jesus Christ has been stripped away as a person who is not necessarily the only voice giving reason. The gospel is diminished, and the gospel is empty because it's not the gospel. So Jude rattles the chain of the churches to whom he is writing to alert them to the danger that they're in. And he doesn't, he doesn't call them to remove themselves from the danger. But he calls them to respond to the danger, how? By contending for the faith. And that's the theme throughout this book, to contend for the faith. You remember, we, we talked about that word contending as kind of like this, this, this battle that we're in. That's why the boxing gloves are up there on the screen. There's this battle, but it's not a battle of, of harshness. The tone here is not to be angry at everyone. But you still have to stand firm. You still have to speak the truth. You still have to maintain integrity with the gospel and with God's word. And then he fleshes that out a little later, and that's verses 17 through verse 23. And I just want to remind you of where we've gone just to bring you back to the place of understanding so that we can jump into our text for this morning. Because in verses 17 and following, we're told here that we are to remember, first of all, God's sovereignty. Hold on a second here. I'm missing something. We're told to remember God's sovereignty. And in remembering God's sovereignty, we're to remember, just like the apostles taught us, that God has called us to live our lives now, here, in the context of ungodliness. And we must accept that for what it is. All right, so here I come from, I came from Michigan to California. And everyone in missions is like, why are you going to California? All right, the old granola bar thing, right? It's the land of fruits and nuts and, right? Yeah, you never heard that before, right? Because you're all, you know, right? Yeah, absolutely. Either that or you've never lived outside of California, right? All right, but you, you come here and it's like, this is where God's called me. And I'm not going to run away simply because of the culture that, that I'm immersed in now. This is the place that God wants me to have my family. This is the place that God wants me to raise my children. And there's ungodliness all over the place. Now, it's not that it wasn't in Michigan. There's a couple of ungodly places in Michigan, too, right? Not in Detroit, because no one lives there anymore, okay? But, but here in the Bay Area, it's, it's just a different form of ungodliness, but it certainly is more widespread and much more public in nature, okay? Now, we need to remember that God has called us here and it's by his sovereign purpose that this is where he's called us. Secondly, to contend for the faith means that we are remaining in God's sanctification. I mean, we're remaining in this process of growth in Christ. Right? Keep yourselves in the love of God is what he says. And, and around that, you have the ways in which you're doing that. Building yourselves up in the most holy faith. Praying in the spirit. Waiting for the coming of the Lord. 
So we are called, interestingly enough, first of all, to be settled about where we are, that it's God's sovereign purpose. Secondly, that we are to be working on our own walk with God. Those are the first two things he says are necessary for contending for the faith. And if you remember, we, we were kind of waiting, okay, where's this big punch where we're supposed to go out there and battle everyone? Well, that's coming, but it's not a battle in the sense of what we were thinking. It's more of a, an attitude and a, a response to those who need saving, a rescue of those who need saving. And this is the ministry of mercy that God has given to us to extend in the context of ungodliness. There are some who doubt, who need a stabilizing mercy. There are those who are deceived, who need a rescuing mercy. And there are those who are defiled, ultimately you might say those who are actually promoting this, this perverted gospel, who also need mercy, but it's a mercy fashioned by hatred for sin and fear of entanglement. And I'm just kind of reflecting what is already there in the text of Scripture for us. This is what God has called us to. God has called us to live our lives now based on his sovereign purpose. I'm called here. He's called us to personally grow in Christ's likeness while we're here. And as we're doing that, then to exercise mercy to those who need mercy. It's a completely different tone than you would typically think of when you hear the words contend for the faith. Now, this, friends is a daunting scenario. It seems overwhelming. We want to jump in the shower and to begin to wash off the dirt and to be cleansed from the ungodliness that so permeates the world that we live in. Yet, in these words that we have just looked at, we're reminded that God is sovereign and he sits on his throne and he is never shaken. And then we get to verse 24 and it begins with the word, Now. He's just taken this, these last 23 verses to, to lay out his case. And this is what I'm calling you to. And then there's this transition word now. With this little word now, we are transitioned from the one arena to another. From the arena of contending for the faith to the arena of our common salvation. I just want you to think about this. Remember the beginning of the book, he says, I actually wanted to come to you and talk about our common salvation. But I have now, looking at the scenario around, have been compelled to talk to you to contend for the faith. So he spends all his time talking about that. But now he's getting back to this arena of our common salvation. Now the importance of what we have here, this doxology, is without this final doxology, we're left somewhat alone in the battle. All right, go, contend for the faith. Okay. <laughs> but with this doxology, we're not left alone. In fact, we are cleansed, but we're also encouraged in the faith. So here's what Jude is doing for us. It's like we've been, we've been taking a shower and we've been scrubbing the dirt and the ungodliness off of us. We've been cleansing our bodies and we are putting, applying the shampoo of contending for the faith in our hair and all across our bodies, and our, our hair is squeaky, our body is, is scrubbed clean, and we go to turn off the water. But Jude says, no. Jude says, don't turn off the water, reach back, and turn it up a little bit. And if you're like me, after I've done all the washing, I like to reach back and not turn it off, but just turn it up a little bit, a little hotter, and just to soak and to begin to soak, and to enjoy what it means to soak in that refreshing hot water. And then two minutes later, I reach back and I turn it up again a little more. And after this cleansing, we get lost in this soaking satisfaction that shuts out everything that's going on outside. There are no work problems in the shower. There's no argument with your spouse. There's no threat on your mortgage. There's no ungodliness alive and rampant in the world. There may be kids banging on the door saying, Dad, what are you doing in there? I want a shower. But you don't hear it. <laughs> because you are so lost in the amazing satisfaction 
of the hot water just pouring on your body from your head all the way down to your feet. All there is is hot, refreshing, soothing water. And life at that moment is amazing. It's as if you're turned off to the world around you and all you can think about is soaking refreshment. Now see, this is what these last two verses are all about. They're a shift in focus from our, uh, to our common salvation. They, they reveal for us an amazing God who is out for our ultimate good and is thoroughly worthy of our praise. They are words that take us out of the, the present problems with a purpose to help us gain perspective to help us realize the character of our amazing God, to help us see our lives according to His purposes. Why? So that we can go back to doing His will. So as we approach these two verses, we can see that they easily unpack into two sections. God's providence for His children and God's praises from His children. God's providence for his children and God's praises from his children. Now let's think about this first one, God's providence for his children. Or we could put it this way, what God does for us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, immediately the focus is moved from us to him. And we are reminded of the fact that our God is able. Now, friends, we've all come into this building today bringing with us all of our struggles and our concerns. There's not a one of you that has bounced in here saying, oh, man, life is just wonderful. You are all carrying something. You may have had a good couple of days, but there are still things that are burdens on your heart. And if they're not me, heavy burdens now, in a couple of days, things may change. Now, friends, life is difficult that way, but we are reminded here that our God is able. I remember when I was a youth pastor in Buffalo, New York, Buffalo, New York actually it was West Seneca, outside of Buffalo, and I would ride along with the senior pastor, I was a youth pastor at that time, and because I'm in the passenger seat going with him, and on his dashboard, there was this sticker, and it said, God is able, exclamation point. And it screamed out to anyone sitting in there, that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've been created for, no matter what he's called you to, that God is able to do what he says he's going to do. And so it's a reminder that Although we're called to be a certain kind of person, although we're called to do certain kinds of things for the glory of God, that it is he that is able to do what he says he will do. I might do it, but I'm not doing it in my strength. He is the one that ultimately is doing it. And that rings true in this section of Scripture. Why? Because if we're called to contend for the faith, what does it mean? It means we're called to do something, but we're called to do something that he is able to accomplish through us. So when you're faced with whatever it is you're faced with, difficulty in your family, difficulty in your, in, in your relationship, in your marriage, a job situation, other daunting issues that are coming up, health, remember, he is able. Our God is able. Now, I don't want you necessarily to throw in there, it's like, ah, you know, rub God, he's able to do whatever I want him to do. That's not what's being talked about here. Our God sits on his throne, unshaken by all the difficulties you and I go through. In the year that King Uzziah died, God was seated on his throne, high and lifted up. And the whole earth was full of his glory. Chaos on the earth, stability in heaven. Chaos in your life, a God that is stable and knows what he's doing. Now, We're called to contend for the faith. But God, um, through our common salvation, it's about what he is able to do for us. And so we're told two specific things that God is able to do. He's able to keep us from something, 
and he's able to present us before someone. He's able, first of all, to keep us, to keep us. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The word keep here has been a crucial word in Jude's letter. Let's just walk through and remind ourselves of what, what Jude tells us. In verse 1, Jude tells his readers that they are the recipients of this letter and that it says those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus. Now, just think about that. You and I are being kept for Jesus which has a future-looking reality. And the active agent for keeping believers in this verse is God the Father. He is the one that's doing the keeping. Now in verse 21 of this little letter, again, we have this word keep, but it's a little different kind of scenario. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Not only is God keeping us, but he also is requiring us to keep ourselves in the love of God. We have a responsibility as his children to, to do the work that we need to do to pursue Christ's likeness. So in this context, we are the agents of the keeping. We have been given the responsibility about keeping ourselves in the love of God. The third arena would be verses 6 and verse 13, where the word keep is used to describe how God keeps those who are ungodly for judgment. Just listen to Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Verse 13, the word kept is not used, but the same idea is used. Wild waves of the sea casting upon the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. God is able to keep you for Jesus God is able to keep those who have been rebellious, who are ungodly, who have shaken their fist at him. He is keeping them for judgment on that great day. And then, of course, finally here in verse 24, we're told that he is able to keep us from stumbling. Now, in verse 24, the idea of keep there is actually a new word, and it has more the idea of guarding. He's guarding us. So we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And we are his workmanship that, that God is careful to protect, careful to care for. You know, what he has begun in you, he will bring to completion, Philippians 1 says. So let's put all this together. In the context of ungodliness, God has called us to contend for the faith how? By keeping ourselves in the love of God. And as we do that, he promises three things. He promises that the ungodly will be kept for judgment, that he will keep us for Jesus Christ, and that we will be guarded by him. Now, friends, this is really important for us to, to settle on here. Proverbs 24, 16, just listen to what it says. You, you've heard it before. It gives us a picture of this reality. It says, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again. Why is it that a righteous person, when they fall, rise again? Is it because they just they get all the strength and they pull up their bootstraps, as they say, right? And they're able to kind of get up and get going again. Is that what's going on here? No. The reason they're able to rise again is because God is consistent and persistent in guarding us and protecting us and keeping us from this utter destruction of eternal sin, or eternal ruin, I should say. The stumbling being talked about in verse 24 is not the daily stumbling that we all go through. We all sin, we all struggle, we're all going to stumble, but it is that imperfect uh, or ultimate eternal struggle that he is keeping us from. He recognizes that we're going to we're going to fall flat on our face. He recognizes that we're going to sin. He recognizes there's a process of our sanctification. But he is committing himself to us, saying, I am keeping you for Jesus Christ. I am keeping you to that end. Of course, that then leads us to the next statement. Not only is God able to keep us from stumbling, but he's able to present us blameless. says, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
He's able to present us before the presence of his glory. This is the ultimate goal in life, friends. This is the end for which we are all created. But it will not be the same for all. Some, the ungodly, are being kept for judgment and will not be able to stand in the judgment or in the congregation of the righteous, Psalm 1 and verse 5 says. Why? Because they're guilty. Because they have eternally stumbled through their persistent unbelief. Because they are not blameless. But those who are God's children, those who are beloved and kept for Jesus, they are kept from stumbling. They're able to stand in his presence. And the readers of this short letter would understand the the kind of Greek imagery here that is being talked about. There's a comparison going on here. Not stumbling and standing. You will not stumble and you will be presented. You will stand before him blameless. Incredible picture. Well, why is that true? Because in Christ... We who are God's children are blameless. They are presented before God on the day of judgment and are found to be blameless. So what does it mean to be blameless? That reaches all the way back into the Old Testament. It's first of all a word that reaches back in the Old Testament and focuses on the sacrifice where the lamb or the goat or the bullock needed to be spotless and without blemish. So the idea of blameless means without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. Secondly, it's a word that describes Jesus as the, the perfect sacrifice. Listen to 1 Peter 1.19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, that is who Jesus is. But then the third way that it's used is talking about believers on that day of judgment. That's what we have here in Jude, but I want to take you just to, to listen to a few passages of Scripture that say the same thing. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay. Ephesians 5.27, so that he might present the church to himself. Just think about that language, right? So that he might present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what God is pushing. This is where he's directing us. This is the end result. And then Colossians 1.22, he has now re reconciled us or reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Again, before him. So Jude is using this last, you might want to say, um, the, the way Jude is using this idea of blameless is in this last sense. We are being presented before him in that last day, blameless, without spot, without wrinkle. Now friends, that is great joy. Now, contending for the faith is not a walk in the park. It's not an easy thing. There will be times of failure. There will be times of fear. There will be times of anxiety. There will be times of discouragement. There will be times of doubt and shame, especially when you've fallen flat on your face. There will be times of, of utter remorse. There will be times of disobedience. In times of weakness, there'll be times when you have been singed by the fire because you're trying to help someone. And you get drawn in to what they're struggling with. And we need to be reminded of our common salvation here, this, that we are kept by God for Christ. That we are blameless because we are in Christ. And with that confident reality... We can rise out of the mire, out of the filth and the smoke of rampant ungodliness and experience great joy because we are secure in him. Now, friends, this is why uh, we believe and we teach what is called the perseverance of the saints. It is God 
who keeps us. It is God who preserves us. It is God who guards us. So here's the promise. In Christ, we are unable to stumble. Not unable to sin, but unable ultimately to stumble. Secondly, in Christ, we're without blame. Why is that true? It's not because of anything that we have done. It is the righteousness and the holiness of Christ who is that lamb, who was that lamb, who was sent to the cross without blemish, without wrinkle, without spot, died as that sacrifice once for all, and his righteousness is applied to us. So our blamelessness is not because of anything in us. Our blamelessness is an alien blamelessness that is given to us by God through Christ. You and I stand before God declared righteous, not because of anything in us, but because of everything that Christ has done for us. The grace of God comes to us through Christ, not independent of him. Now, friends, it's really important we understand that. And this is part of God's plan. So it's, it's not based on the strength of our belief. I just need to believe you, God, more. I need to believe you more. If I believe you more, I'm going to be more blameless. No. It's not on the balancing of our obedience over against our disobedience. It is only found in our security that is in him that is based on everything that Jesus has accomplished for us in the gospel on the cross. Now, again, I want you to notice where this is taking place. It's taking place in the presence of his glory. In the presence of God, you and I will be blameless. Just think about that. You didn't do it. He does it all. Now, friends, that should cause us to ask ourselves, how will we respond when we stand before him one day? You might say, well, I would be very fearful, be very ashamed, very concerned in standing before God. I recognize there's a holy reverential fear of God. Yes, I get that. But if we embrace what Scripture says, we in Christ are blameless. And because of that, we can come boldly to the place where to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And rejoice at that prospect and not fear the prospect of standing before God. Because we have been declared righteous. We are blameless. We are holy because of Christ. So friends, the day is coming when our experience with Christ will be united with our standing in Christ. Let me say that again. The day is coming when our experience with Christ, that means your daily pursuit and growth in Christ likeness, will be united with our standing in Christ. You will be holy as you are holy. Now we're, we're commanded, we're encouraged, we're compelled to pursue being what we already are. But there will come a day when we will be what we are in its full extent. Presented before him, blameless. Now here's a caution for us, because the result of that is great joy. But what are the grounds of our joy? Now hear this, it should not be that we are forgiven, that we're blameless, that we're righteous, although those are wonderful benefits of the gospel, but it should be that we're God's. We have been reconciled to him. The gospel is all about reconciliation. It's about restoring us to God. We are at home with him. Here's here's a question for us. Would you be satisfied if you finally reached heaven, blameless, righteous, and forgiven, but Jesus was not there? Now, I realize it's a non-reality. But a lot of times it's like, oh, you know, the... The streets are paved with gold, and there's gems all over the architecture. Okay, but the gold streets are going to be like cement. The gold in heaven is not going to be a commodity like we have gold here on this earth. That's not what is wonderful about heaven. 
What's wonderful about the prospect of heaven is that God is there, that Jesus is there. Now think about it, it's like this, it's like a couple wanting to get married, and so they go through premarital counseling, and they finally get to the day of their, their marriage, and they go through the, the ceremony, and then they, they both say, I do, or I will, depending on how you do it, right? And, and, and then as soon as the ceremony is done, the groom is gone. Never seen again. Got your marriage. All right? New status. But the one you love is not there. We sang a song today. All I have is Christ. Now, I don't want to diminish the fact that we're forgiven. I don't want to diminish what the gospel means as far as our standing is concerned, that we are declared righteous and that we are in him and that we have the benefits of the gospel. But hear this. The gospel is God. It's being reconciled back to him. And if we just think it's about all the other stuff, we've fallen short in the goal of the gospel for us. But we rejoice with great joy and we stand before him blameless, restored, reconciled, fully. Friends, that is a wonderful prospect. Now I want us to transition from what God does for us to how we respond back to God, what God receives from us, God's praises from his children. You're in the shower still. You've rinsed off the dirt. You've been soaking in the amazing reality of the fact that you are kept by God and that you are, you are presented by God. And so now... Again, you ponder who God is, and it results in your praises to him. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and evermore. Now, I printed up the handouts before I finished up my sermon, so there's actually a fourth point. You should have a letter A and then a new letter B, so your letter B should actually be C. You follow me so far? Because there's something in here I just thought was significant to make sure it's pointed out here. What is it that God receives from us? And what he receives from us is praise and adoration. Notice, first of all, the object of our praise. To the only God, our Savior. Now, friends, hear this. There is only one true God. If you claim to hold to the Bible but believe there are multiple legitimate gods out there, then you don't claim what the Bible teaches. There is only one God. Any other attempt to, to, to hold up another God is an attempt at foolishness, is an attempt at emptiness, and will cause your doom and ruin. There is one God. And we understand him to be the triune God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is only one God, and that one God is the only God. And because he is the only God, he is also the saving God, and so he is worthy of our worship. He is the only God. He is the object of our worship. He is the one we praise. He is the one that is keeping us. He is the one that's preserving us. He is the one that is calling us to contend for the faith. He is the one that's concerned about his church. He is the one that that loves his children. And so our praise and our adoration goes to him for who he is. He is this unique and only God. Now, certainly we create little gods with little Gs, right? All sorts of idols, all sorts of things that we turn to to substitute our satisfaction. We escape to other places. We escape through other means when Jesus and when God is supposed to be our satisfaction, is supposed to be the place that we retreat to, is supposed to be the, the arena that we soak ourselves with Him as opposed to other things. 
That's a constant battle in our growth toward Christ-likeness. And we need to remember that he is the one that needs to sit on the throne. And oftentimes we try and put other things on the throne, theoretically, in attempt to satisfy our souls. But they will only bring temporary, limited, diminished satisfaction. And we need to put God back in the place that when we're when we're reaching back and we're turning the water up a little bit, it's God that is pouring all over us, not some substitute. Not only are we praising the only God, the object of our praise, but also I want you to notice the agent of our praise. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now God, the triune God, is a loving God who sent his son, Christ, to the earth, ultimately to go to a cross so that through his death and satisfaction and the bearing of wrath, we might have a means by which we can be reconciled to God. That, friends, is an act of a loving God, and and Jesus is the agent of that. So some argue that this text is saying that God is our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, although that is true theologically, I think you can go other places in Scripture that recognize that our salvation is through Jesus Christ our Lord, this passage, what is being said here, is actually referring to something different. It's referring to our ability to praise God. And it's a little nuanced, but the the, the Greek grammar here would, would direct us away from attributing our salvation through Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not saying that it's not through him. It's just saying that's not what is being said here. What it's saying here is our salvation through Jesus Christ, but our ability to praise God is because of Jesus Christ. Let me say it differently. Because we rest in the fact that God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before him in glory, we are able then to to praise him on the basis of and with the help of his son, Jesus Christ. Just read Read verse 25 again. To the only God, our Savior. All right, put a little pause there. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority. Get that? That's the emphasis here. So through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be these things. All right? He is the agent of our praise. It is because of Jesus that we now turn around and we say, not only is he able to say, but we are able to praise, but we're focusing now on the content or the nature of our praise, which is these four words, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Because of Jesus, now we are able to attribute praise to God. Through Jesus, we praise. Through Jesus, we praise. Worship his glory, his majesty, his dominion, his authority. This is the content or the nature of our praise. Let's think about these four words. Glory is talking about the splendor of the holiness of the one true God. Glory is to be put on display. Glory is to be revealed. Glory is to be manifest, right? The whole earth is full of his glory. So our job, our goal as a child of God, as a church, is to reflect the glory of God back to him, but also reflect the glory of God around us and actually to one another, all three arenas. Secondly, there's this word majesty. And the idea here is the greatness of his kingly status. He rules supreme. He is high and lifted up. He sits on his throne above everything. He reigns as king absolutely. Then there's the word dominion. This is talking about the extent of his might and rule over everything. His dominion is everywhere. You say, well, well, wait a second. Aren't there little pockets where, you know, Satan has control and Satan has some kind of a realm? The only reason why Satan has any realm is because God is allowing him to have that realm. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Satan's domain is not heaven. Hear this. His domain is not even 
hell. His domain is here. And the church, God's church, are like little, little havens in the context of the domain that Satan has been given freedom to roam. So we as the church are a place of safety, are a place of protection for God's people. That's why when in Matthew 18 it talks about the person who continues in sin and will not repent ultimately is going to be put out of the church the idea there is that person is put now into the realm where they are no longer protected by the church. And they're now directly faced with the realm of Satan. And we've lost our, our passion and our seriousness about the, the importance of the church. That for many of us, that doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. I'll take the church. I don't need it. I can walk with God on my own. If you do that, you're walking on your own in a realm that God has never intended for you to walk. You're supposed to walk with the church. Then there's the authority, the supreme right and privilege to do as he wills. Not only does God sit on the throne, but when God speaks, he speaks with authority. Now just think about this. Go back to verse 4. What were they doing? They were turning the grace of God into sensuality and they were denying that Jesus Christ had the authority to say what he said. If I don't have to listen to Jesus, then I can do what I want. If I don't have to listen to God, I can do what I want. But God is authority. No, authority is not a popular word today, is it? But he is. Whether you like it or not, he is our ultimate authority. Now, all four of these words taken together point to the all-consuming power and wonder of God. And this is the same God who calls us to contend for the faith, but he also, in calling us to contend for the faith, comforts us with the promise that he is able to keep us and to present us. And that reality through Jesus Christ is the reason why we're able to praise him. He is able and he is worthy. <laughs> and then the extent of our praise. And not just ours, but just all of creation. All of what God has done before all time, now and forevermore. The facts that he is able and that he is worthy have been true in eternity past, are true today or on the day that this letter was written and will always be true. A.T. Robinson says this, this is as complete a statement of eternity as can be made in human language. Our God is worthy to be praised. And the point here, friends, is this, that there are, there are times when God gives us instruction, he calls us to live a certain way, and he calls us to live in the context of ungodliness, and that, that can be daunting, that can be difficult. I know so many of your stories right now are struggling with family and health and friends and all sorts of different things, and, and there's, a, there's a daunting, there's a, there's a weight that's on your shoulders, and there's a sense in which you just want to take a shower and get rid of all that stuff, and we understand that, but there's also a need at times for us to take a shower and to turn the water up and just to soak and to soak in God and to get to the place that we are reminded of our common salvation, who we are in Christ, what he is doing in our lives, and the ultimate promise that we are being kept by him and the ultimate promise that we will be presented before him. Friends, that is incredible stuff. Now, I want to conclude with some application, some concluding thoughts. How do you and I respond or relate to a God like this? And I have six things I want to share with you. I just want to help us walk through together, okay? The first one is this, believe. We must believe God's promise to us that he is able. Do you believe that, friend? Right now, it might be daunting. 
right now, the struggle you're going through with that child or with that, that sickness or with that, that transition that you're going through, all sorts of different things are happening. God is able. Now, the, the goal here is not to say that God do what I want you to do. The goal here is to say, God, I'm putting my circumstances, my life, my struggles under your care, and I'm trusting that you will do best. He is able. Secondly, attribute. He's at work. We must attribute to God the work of growth that has been, is, and will be done in us for our good and for his glory. As you reflect on your failure, as you reflect on your restoration, as you reflect on your forgiveness, as you reflect on the things that God has provided for you, as you reflect over suffering you've gone through, we all must be in this process of attributing to God the work that he is doing in us, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, what? Acknowledge him. It may not make any sense now why he's doing what he's doing. But you must acknowledge that he is working on you and he is working his will in you and through you. Number three, drink. We must be like the tree in Psalm 1 that is planted by the rivers of water, drinking in the nourishment of God that comes to us by his spirit through his word. Friends, I can't say it enough, can't say it enough, can't say it enough. Be in God's word. Not in a legalistic way, but be in God's word, feeding on it. Let it satisfy you. Let the, let the, the reality of who God is be, be, be something that, that you're thirsty for and you long for. Drink it up. Of course, Psalm 1 tells us that tree is planted firmly and produces the kind of fruit necessary for that particular season of life. And the fourth thing is rest. Oh, how we need to rest. <laughs> you know, there's something about turning that water on and soaking in that water that is actually refreshing and very restful. And there's something about being reminded of the truth of God and getting the perspective of God through his word that causes me to be settled, that causes me to rest, that causes me to take those anxiety and burdens off of my shoulder and say, God, I'm going to do my best to be faithful to you, but I'm, more than that, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to hold on to you, and I'm going to rest. And friends, sometimes that is one of the hardest things for us to do is to rest. And that can mean being patient, that can mean not, not running ahead with something that you want to do. It could be, you know, holding off, maybe not purchasing that thing, whatever it might be, but it's rest. I mean, how many times have you been in conflict with someone and, and you're still emotional? You know, I'm going to go and settle this now. And you're saying, I want to do it God's way, but you're still, you're not in God's way. You're still emotionally driven. You're still charged by the offense. And rather than deal with things in a Christ-like way, you go in harsh and heavy-handed. And what you need to do is step back and rest and pray and trust God so that your spirit can, could be changed and conformed. Now, friends, we must rest on the fact that we are blameless, that we are forgiven, that we're declared righteous. Now, I just want to pause here for a second. There are people that, that are Christians that go through their Christian life nursing some belief that somehow, although they're God's children, there's still something more about them that is a blemish that is somehow diminished or some area where God is still not satisfied with them and they're not attributing to themselves the truth of what God says. Now, friends, the reality is God says, you and I, because we've, we've embraced him as Lord and Savior, are declared righteous you are as holy now as you will ever be. The issue here is this. Do you believe it? 
And are you willing to rest in it? See, that's our position. God looks down at us. He looks at us through the lens of Jesus Christ. And he sees us not in the the mire and muck of our sin, because that's been paid for, that's been covered by Christ. So when you fall flat on your face, and we all do, you fall flat on your face and you recognize, you know what, God doesn't want me here, and I can turn around and I can go to him, even in my sinfulness, but with a repentant heart and say, God, forgive me and restore me back to relationship with you. I haven't lost my salvation. I'm in this relationship now that, that needs to be restored and there needs to be more intimacy, but I'm reminded that in spite of my continued sinfulness, I have been declared righteous and that standing doesn't change and so I restore that relationship through forgiveness and confession and I continue to work on my sin anyone here not sin today you're about to or if you're raising your hand you are all right well how is it that I sin and yet God declares me blameless because Your blamelessness is not based on your ongoing sin. Your blamelessness is based on the fact that you have been redeemed, that you have been bought, that you have been reconciled. That is your position in Christ. Your progressive sanctification is becoming what you already are. Okay? So we rest in our status in Christ and we pursue now the life of, should be like Christ, but we'll never get there ultimately until we are in heaven. So rest on the truth of that reality. Next thing is obey. So we go from rest to saying you're blameless, you're forgiven, you're righteous to obey. Now hear this. We must obey God because we must obey God because we love and trust what he says. That's why we contend for the faith. That's why when we, we read what Jude says to contend for the faith, we're saying, you know what, that's a command, we should do it, okay? That's why we want to remember that he is sovereign. That's why we want to remain in his love. That's why we want to rescue those who are struggling. Because in a context of ungodliness, where we see that God is sovereign and working through us for his glory, we're not beaten into obedience. And this is the key part here. We're loved into it. You see, the obedient, obedience has this negative connotation, right? It's like, obey, obey, obey. No, obedience here is something that we're loved into. Why do we want to obey? Well, who's asking us to do what he's asking us to do? The God who's declared us righteous. The one to whom we can't wait to be with in heaven. So we obey out of love, not because we're beaten into submission to obey. So friends, we relate to this God, this incredible God, through an obedience that is fueled by his love for us. And the final thing here is this this idea of rejoicing then. Rejoice. We must come out of the mire of ungodliness and rejoice over the fact that because we're in Christ, we're blameless. There's, there's great joy, friends, when we can sing songs that declare the majesty and the beauty of what God has done for us. There's just joy that overflows. And so, friends, it's so important to kind of get the perspective that, that Jude is trying to lay out for us here. He wants us to see, yes, I'm calling you to contend for the faith, but I want to remind you of our common salvation. As you're doing that, I want want you to see how beautiful it is that you are kept, how beautiful it is that, that I am going to present you blameless before him with great joy. I want you to see that he is the only God that that only God, out of love, sent his son Jesus Christ. And that, that son is the agent and the means by which we turn to God and we praise him for his glory, his majesty, his dominion, and his authority. And we can do that. We have been doing it. We can do it now. We can will do it forevermore. 
Now, friends, we're not done yet. There's one more word. That's the word amen. And the word amen means so be it. May this come true. And there's a sense in which we have been soaking in the hot water of this common salvation. And now it's time to reach back. And in my house, it would just be a bump. Boom. And the water turns off. And I'm reminded that I have a life to live for his glory. He hasn't called me to continually soak in the shower He's called me to live a life for his glory. But there are times when I need that soaking. You get the picture there? There are times when I need just to pause. I need to retreat. I need to bask in the awesomeness of who he is because through that I am fueled. I've been given perspective so that I can go back to the reality of what he's called me to and that is to contend for the faith, for the glory of his gospel in the context of ungodliness. But now with a renewed vigor, with a renewed passion, and with the soothing realities still tingling on our souls, we can go out and we can do what God has called us to do. Let's pray together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now, and forevermore.